Gospel of John. But before we get into the passage tonight, I wanted to put a question in everyone's ear. Why are you here? I don't ask that antagonistically, but like seriously. I've been able to talk with a few of you who are new to Athens this year, and the consistent thing that I've heard from you is that things like large group, freshman fellowship, prayer team, uh, have been some of the like few places you've been able to like, experience community in Athens and like start to set roots down. And that's been a blessing for you guys. Um, and for some of y'all who have been here for the last three or four years, it could be any number of things, especially because like, I have so, so many memories formed here. Um, maybe it's that the, the relationships that you've shaped here during your time in college. Maybe it's that you just really enjoy the music and it's like it's a helpful and like wonderful worship service for you. Um, and let's be honest, some of y'all are probably just here for the girls or for the guys, and there's no shame in that. Um, I'm glad that you're here too. Um, it, but I wanted to ask this question because it's the question Jesus is asking the hordes of people that are following him in the passage that we're looking at tonight. He, he like, calls out to them and says, why are you following me? Since we first saw Jesus behind the scenes turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, he's been garnering a lot more attention. And uh, the, the crowds have been growing, the word's been spreading, and Jesus was seeing quite the following form. Uh, mainly because everywhere he was going, helpful things were happening to people in need. And he's become somewhat of a local celebrity at this point in the Gospel of John, a, a celebrity preacher, a healer. And Specific to our conversation tonight, the, the chapter before this in chapter 5, Jesus performs a series of public healings which, obviously not the most common of occurrences, and causes a crowd of thousands to start to form as Jesus is making his way through Galilee. And the crowd gets further amazed by one of Jesus' more famous miracles um, as they are all fed by him off of just five loaves and two fish. And so we pick it up uh, with this crowd tonight, just the next day after they have set off eagerly uh, seeking for Jesus once again. And so I want to read the passage tonight in your seats if you want to go along with me, starting in verse 22 in chapter 6. Um, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had, there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, since you asked, uh, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread of he from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, 
I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. For I continue now, I want to pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for your son. Uh, thank you for entering into our story and experience this world with us uh, and being patient with us, Lord. Thank you for being patient, patient with this crowd here in Galilee, and thank you for John for recording this down for us. And I pray that you bless this time with us together. Um, I pray that uh, your word shines through and who you are shines through uh, what I say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So tonight I want to take a look at just three things that Jesus addresses the crowd um, with to get them to be real with him. The first one is that we seek what we think we need. We have deeply felt needs that affect everything about our day-to-day. Meeting these things shape the order of our weeks, um, what we get involved in, how we operate in the world. And it, it, it shapes what you type into Google, what websites you linger on. Uh, it shapes who you text and what you're hoping to get out of your social media presence. It shapes your sleep schedule, or whether you stay up till 4 a.m. playing video games, your, your life, your schedule, your relationships, your hobbies, all of it is shaped by what you think you need and how you think you can get what you need. And these felt needs, they have this way of getting overinflated in our lives into ultimate needs driving forces in our lives that Jesus calls hungers. And Tim Keller puts it helpfully, the human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our heart deifies them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. We ask these felt needs to be bread for our souls, to to carry the weight of our lives. And none of these things are inherently bad things. Um, In reality, they're gifts. To have a friend group to go through college with is a blessing, and it's a wonderful thing. To be able to maintain your scholarship here is a wonderful thing. Um, Being able to enjoy worship music and fellowship is good. Uh, To want good things isn't a sin. 
But to go through life clinging to the gift of God and missing God himself is like going to a five-star restaurant and filling up on the like appetizers and the cold bread that they serve you to start off with. You, you lose your appetite for the main course and it just doesn't fill you up. And it's not nearly as good as what's coming next. And the, the same is true of the crowd in this passage. They're, they're prone to fill up on a basket of bread and it's killed their appetite for everything that comes next. Jesus himself. So like a good waiter, Jesus comes up to them and says, hey, what are you doing? The bread isn't the main course. Leave room for what's coming. Jesus and the crowd are not on the same page um, as to what the crowd is seeking after. If you asked any one of them, though, they probably would have just said that they're seeking Jesus. But Jesus jumps their initial question to point out the, the contrary. In verse 26, he clarifies their pursuits by saying that you're not coming to me because you're satisfied with who I am, but rather you pursue me because I simply fed you. Or to uh, paraphrase it, you're not seeking me because you're satisfied with me, but rather because you're satisfied with how you think I can lower your grocery bill or meet your desire for entertainment as if I'm a magician. The passage doesn't even say anything about them wanting a second meal as if they're like simply surprised that the food truck moved over to the next city. No, it, it says that, in fact, that they left Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So which is it? Is it? Why were the first words out of Jesus' mouth calling them out for simply being hungry? Because he wants to hit on something going on in the hearts of this Jewish crowd as they pursue him. So to make it plain for them, he reveals exactly how they showed him their hand. They had become amazed at the things Jesus could do. They had heard of him flipping tables in the temple to resist oppressive systems in the house of God. They saw him heal people who had been paralyzed and on the verge of death for decades. Certainly rumors of the wine that he had provided for the wedding had started to make their way around, and to top it all off, they watched firsthand as he turned five loaves of bread into a full buffet for thousands of them. And it's in the moments following this miracle that Jesus is calling them out on. The entire crowd was Jewish, meaning that they were down with the idea of a savior and everything that the scriptures have to say. We see that they're quoting it several times in this interaction with Jesus. They, they were church folk like a lot of us. And the, over the generations, they started to look through scripture through the lens of culture, and slowly what their culture said would be satisfying got baked into their idea of what a savior is. And the ideals of having comfort, security, political power, wealth, health, anything that would make their lives easier and remove them from the margins permanently became what they expected to come in a savior. Someone that would give them power. So, only when they saw that Jesus might have the power to make that possible did they try to force them into their idea of a king. They go as far, even a few verses prior, to call him a prophet, and we see here like they respect him as a rabbi. They have, they have respect for Jesus. And if we're being honest, the same is true for a lot of us. In the American South, the world that most of us grew up in, we tend to do this same tricky thing. Without realizing it, 
We let the world around us shape a laundry list of desires, and we rationalize them as good, as helpful, and even necessary for our flourishing. And so we make this mistake of thinking these ideals, or idols, of comfort, romantic intimacy, political power, uh, will satisfy us, or save us, and we conflate them with the idea of a savior. We can even go as far as mistaking our idols for Jesus himself. Like the crowds in John 6, our brains tell us we're following Jesus, but our hearts are on some other pursuit entirely. We look to each of these things to satisfy us completely in the right here, right now, and they always leave us persistently unsatisfied. Jesus presents to the crowd that if we were simply to have the humility to put our baked-in assumptions of what a Savior is and of how we need to be saved aside, all of the dissatisfactions of our soul could finally be nourished by him. All of our insecurities met. And the second Jesus calls the crowd into humility, they switch from trying to force his arm into being their genie king and to adamantly start discrediting who he says he is. Discrediting the Savior when he's standing right in front of them. And don't we do the same thing when Jesus confronts our idols? Or how we think we need to be saved? The first thing the crowd does to discredit Jesus is he deems them unremarkable. He deems him, sorry, they deem him unremarkable because they grew up with him. They knew his parents. In a second, they go from ready to make him leader of their political movement to perceiving every word that comes out of his mouth as offensive. And they finish this narrative off without needing to consider an ounce of the depth of what he is saying. All of the grumbling and pride in the hearts of the crowd just completely acts as blinders to what Jesus is trying to communicate. Simply that the things we're seeking of this world to satisfy us and save us are the very things that are destroying us. Jesus meets not merely your perceived needs, but fully satisfies your real needs. In fact, Jesus came to meet you, Jesus came to meet what you actually need, not just what we think we need. Namely, to restore life in the world. He's deeply concerned with the needs that you feel in the right here, right now. He isn't in the business of ignoring real sufferings, very real shame and oppression. In this particular passage, we saw thousands of people who were hungry, and he fed them. He saw a woman the last two weeks riddled with shame and definitively restored her dignity. In the chapter just prior to this one, we see that he went out of his way to heal people's illnesses. Across the four Gospels, there's countless of stories of Jesus meaningfully caring for the everyday needs of everyday people. We have enough confidence that Jesus is deeply concerned by injustice, sickness, shame, death, poverty, hunger, and every other aspect of brokenness we feel in this world. He even displays time and time again that he has the power to restore all of those things. But the thing is, while Jesus pays attention to your pressing needs, and while he's often willing to give relief to them, he doesn't just satisfy our needs, he reframes our needs and reprioritizes them. Think about that paralytic I talked about getting healed. The man had a very real need for healing, 
And Jesus provided it. And then he said, which was easier to do? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to pick up your mat and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. You, you see, he's meeting comparatively little needs, showing mercy and compassion, but he's reframing and reprioritizing that man's needs too. There's something more than physical kneeling, uh, kneeling, <laughs> healing that he needs. That was just the appetizer, and Jesus is who he really needs, and Jesus gives him that. Because to just heal his legs but not give him Jesus would be to leave the man as bad as he found him. Jesus goes on to say, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? And another quote by Keller adds that God will only give you what you would have asked for if he knew everything he knows. Jesus is saying to this crowd who's expecting their Savior to be something completely different, I'm coming to give you what you would beg for me, that you would beg me for if you knew the depth of your need. And he is saying the same thing to us. Jesus sees your needs. He shows that he actually understands them far more fully than you do. Every single encounter that we've looked at so far this semester, Jesus has led with care that the people he came across with, came across, didn't know how to ask for. He knows that although we feel the potency of our insecurity vividly, that we can't pinpoint or satisfy the need. Because here's the thing, we were, <laughs> no, sorry, we feel insecure. It just is that way. We're uncomfortable and we're vulnerable. Because we were created to be united to God and forever in his love and in his presence and in his care. We need something that can restore that rift, that can reconnect us back to our creator. And so Jesus in this passage is making his first big claim of his public ministry, that it is he who is God made flesh who has entered into this world. God has made himself accessible to us so that we don't have to be desperately clamoring around this world trying to find things that will give us a sense of significance or security. That it is he who we hunger for. That he's the only thing that can bridge this rift between our desperation and our security. And further, that he is who will restore life in the world. In this passage, Jesus points out that if we're going to survive, we need a complete shift in our sense of need. That we have to stop seeking after these empty things that enslave us and start seeking what will liberate and secure us. But the problem is that just like the crowd in this chapter, the deafening noise of the world's brokenness and our own sin has dulled our senses most to our need of him even when he's just plainly in front of us. So Jesus reveals something additional about himself. That he's the kind of savior committed to pursuing those who can't pursue him. Jesus didn't stop at making himself accessible to you. He didn't just start reaching out 99% and is waiting for you to get your stuff together. He isn't going, he's going the full distance removing the blinders, and is never letting us go. 
God knows that we're hopeless to reach out to him and pull ourselves out of the mess we're in. And the gospel is that we need a God that can bridge the gap and does bridge the gap. God himself enters into our lives and brings meaningful resistance to the insecurity, the sufferings, and oppression that deafens us so that we can hear him speak to us. So that we can see our idols for what they are and him for who he is. We can see in verse 44 and 37 that Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And so even in the midst of grumbling, Jesus persists with great patience and makes them aware of the gospel, that the Father proactively enters into our lives because he knows that he has to make us aware of our need of a Savior. God is actively engaged in the details of our lives, and he doesn't just leave us stuck there because God doesn't desire to just expose our needs and leave us stranded. He's calling us home. And it's Jesus who secures us. Jesus knows that all we have experienced in this world is insecurity. That's why he illustrates the entire sermon with this feeling of hunger. Because to live in this world is to constantly long for something. So three times over, as he reveals who he, it, it, that he is who we need, he adds something. He says, I am who you need, and I will never cast you out. I am who you need, and I will never lose anything that the Father has entrusted to me. I am who you need, and I will raise you on the last day. Why? Because all we have experienced is a world full of idols that are always demanding more from us. All we know is a world that perishes and that has death in it. So when he declares that he is the God we need to come through for us, he speaks to that pain directly by saying once he has secured us, there is nothing for us to add. And there is nothing we can do to fall again. How? Because our Savior is on the move. And he entered into our story because he knew we needed it before we ever knew to ask for it. And so all of this begs the question, what does Jesus ask from us? To simply believe that he is who he says he is. We've seen that your sense of needs and priorities would immediately shift if you could see Jesus, I'm sorry, if you could see you the way Jesus sees you. And to finish things off, your sense of security and your satisfaction in him would immediately shift if you could see him the way he shows himself. Our perception of the Father drawing us is a process of coming to believe Jesus is who he says he is, as faithful as he says he is, and can actually save us. Our reality is, create, is that the created things we turn to to satisfy our needs persistently fail us. And honestly, the Christian life can often feel like a growing holy dissatisfaction with the way things are because of how great we come to know our Savior to be. And I'm going to be clear a minute. What it looks like to believe is another thing the crowd in this passage struggles with. Because how is believing any different than working for our salvation? We're still having to do something, right? I'm not saying that we have to believe hard enough. 
I'm not pushing a guilt trip gospel or trying to get y'all to do an altar call. I, I actually think Simon Peter offers a beautiful example of what a profession of faith is in this narrative. If you were to read on to the very end, he then says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Over the course of this semester, we're going to hear a lot more from Simon Peter. Uh, And in the New Testament, we'll also see that his faith is far from always perfect, energetic, passionate, anything you could put on there. He just realizes and believes that the only thing he can bank on to heal the brokenness of this world is Jesus that his only hope is for Jesus to pull through. Because everything else fails him, including his own self. And so if you got lost in any part of this, I want you to walk away with this. That the gospel is that Jesus experiences a cosmic hunger from a lack of presence with the one that he adores, his food, his life, with the Father, that you could be nourished and not by some rationed meal that you have to keep continuing to work for, but rather a feast, five loaves multiplied a thousand over. So will you let Jesus reframe your needs? Will you believe him when he says, you've dulled your appetite because you mistook things for the main course? Will you take hold of him and look to the sun and believe that he is in fact the bread of your life, that you might be raised up on the last day? I wanna pray real quick. Father, again, we thank you for your son. Thank you for entering into our story before we could ask for it, before we knew that we could ask for it. Father, uh, I pray that as we go out tonight, help us to be increasingly aware of you when you're right in front of us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to have an increased faith in you. And Father, I pray that you... 